Amen. Great singing. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 12 as we continue our study in this first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10 is where we will begin the study today. And we'll actually end it all the way in chapter 14, verse 24. Due to the length of that, I'm going to read the text throughout the message today uh, instead of at the very beginning. But do go ahead and turn there, please, so you can follow along in your Bibles. If you're visiting, please use the, the blue Bible in front of you if you don't have one. We'd love for you to take that, use it as a resource. Page 9 is where you'll find the text in the blue Bible. Well, it's Memorial Day weekend, and so we're entering in June very soon which means that unofficially it's shower season. What I mean by that is, for most people it's wedding season, but for the rest of us it's shower season because that means that we're buying gifts for all the people who are having weddings. (laughs) Not only do we get to buy gifts for those who are having weddings, but God has also blessed our church in recent days with those who are having children, which invites more opportunities for gift giving. And then, gifts for graduation. Graduation parties abound, and so do the opportunities to give gifts. It's a regular thing in life, not just Christmas, but then those seasons around this time of year and when you have more opportunities to give. My advice to you for these times of year would be that you have some go-tos, that you have some just typical gifts that you give away at particular functions. So I've got a few of those that I do for graduations, and it's typically the same book that I normally give out every time. And I've got a a little thing that I do for weddings, and Tanya and I have been sharing it for 10 plus years now. And I also have one for baby showers. My favorite thing to give away, and I can honestly say that I've given away more copies of this book as a gift than any other book in my library. It is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Now, if, if you don't have a copy of this resource, just have a baby or adopt one, and you'll get it from me. I'll just go ahead and tell you right now, it's, it's coming. But I first came across that book about, I don't know, 13 years ago, I think, as soon as it came out. And I hate to say it, but even though it's a children's Bible, I don't think that any other book has changed the way I read my Bible more than the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's worth it for the first three pages of the book. In the opening pages, it explains that the Bible is God's Word. You understand that. But then you you flip the page, and it starts to dispel some of the popular myths about reading your Bible. And the first one that it addresses is that many people read the Bible thinking that it's a list of rules. And then it goes on to explain how people read the Bible looking for rules to follow. But then it corrects it and says, the Bible is not just a book of rules at all. And then you look at the next page, and at the very beginning it says, and many other people tend to think that the Bible is just a book of heroes. Examples that we follow, and the picture above it is all the like patriarchs of the Old Testament. There's little pictures. And I'm like, as I'm reading that, I'm like, yeah, rules to follow, examples to emulate. This is how I read my Bible. But then it corrects, and it says, it's not a book of examples at all. (laughs) And then you flip the page one more, 
And there's a picture of a book, and it says, The Story. And it explains that it's not just a book of examples. It's not just a book of rules. It is a story about a hero who comes to enter in to man's condition and rescue him from his sin. And then it proceeds throughout the remainder of the book to follow every major story that you've heard in Sunday school from the perspective of God is rescuing his people. So it presents us with a couple of options. The popular option for reading the Bible, especially Old Testament narratives like we're going to approach today in Genesis 12 through 14, is option number one. This is a book of rules, primarily, and a book of examples. And so what do we do when we get to these particular stories? I'll go ahead and preview the three stories that we're going to look at today. One is Abraham and Sarai in Egypt where he lies about his, his wife and she gets kind of kidnapped. The next story is Abram and Lot and how they get in a land disagreement and end up splitting up. And then the next story befuddles many. It is Abram and his war against the tribal leaders of a foreign nation. Now, if you're reading through your Bible... With option number one in play, like that's your paradigm, when you get to this, you don't have a clue what to do. I mean, Abram basically sells his wife to Pharaoh. Uh, What do you say? Well, you know, be resourceful in difficult situations. (laughs) Or number two, Abram splits from Lot. Well, we need to be nice to our nephews. Story number three. Abram gets entangled in war. We better be ready to battle for our families. I mean, really. If I had to preach that this morning, I think I would want to skip it. Like, that's that's lame. But what if we view it from paradigm number two? What if when we read these stories today, we don't look for examples to follow and rules to obey, but we look for a rescuer, we look for a hero, we look to see God's actions in this story. I promise it will change the way you look at Genesis 12, 13, and 14. And that is what Genesis was intended to do. These stories were provided to the children of Israel first group sitting on the plains of Moab and they were scared and they were fearful and they had challenges that seemed absolutely insurmountable as they were going to walk in obedience to God. They already had plenty of rules to follow. But what they needed though was help and encouragement through the difficult rules that they already had. And that's exactly what these stories provided. Genesis 1 through 11 we saw was going to give them hope helping them realize that God would rescue them through a covenant. God would enter into a relationship, even though they had ruined, mankind had ruined everything, God would restore it all by actually initiating a relationship with them, and we keep waiting for that relationship. And we get in chapter 12, and we saw it last week with Abram. God says, I will, I will, I will create a special relationship with you. I promise that through you, 
I will bless the entire world and fix everything that you guys broke. And so the children of Israel, the original readers, are holding on to that promise. And what they read in the accounts to follow (laughs) is for their hope and encouragement. It's not to burn them down with more, it's actually to build them up for what they already know. And I have a feeling that among the faces that I'm looking at this morning, you don't need more burdening down, you need a little bit of building up. And so let's look at these stories, we'll call them vignettes, three of them. And we can look at them from the perspective of Abraham and the perspective of God. I'll take the popular approach first and then I'll modify it as I give these little titles of these vignettes. The first one is Abraham's internal cowardice in chapter 12, verse 10 to 20. Abram's internal cowardice. If I was going to label this story from the popular interpretive approach, I would say that this is a story about Abram's internal cowardice. And you're about to see why. No sooner has God delivered the the, the promise. (laughs) No sooner has he delivered the promise and Abraham begins to seem to act on faith in light of it is the promise challenged. Look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. You notice the threat starts right at the beginning. Uh, you've got a famine in the land. And, and for those of us who live in a culture and a society in which we have literally, and I don't, I'm not trying to be too funny, but this is a little funny, in which we have to actually wage a war on obesity, uh, famine doesn't resonate with us. We don't know anything about this kind of threat. We have people who literally stock basements and bomb shelters so that they can live for 30 years. In this day, one bad year with threatened life, two bad years will eliminate life. There's no preservatives. There's very little ways of storing food. A famine in the land is a big deal. And by the way, if Abram dies, the promise is over. (laughs) Because God promised land and seed and blessing. And quite honestly, how do you have offspring if you're dead? You're not blessed if you're dead. And who cares if you own the land if you're dead? The the, the promise is, is literally dead if Abraham dies. And so... There's a famine, and Abram's resourceful. He, he goes down to Egypt to sojourn there, and there's no commentary on this being a bad thing. Egypt makes sense. You, you know your geography pretty well. You look at that northern part of Africa, and you know that the Nile River runs from south to north, and then it branches out into the Nile Delta. It is a very fertile place. If there's anywhere that will be immune to the, the full effects of a famine, it will be Egypt. And so God's people often would journey down to Egypt for relief, And Abram does no different. There's nothing wrong with this. He's trying to protect the promise. He's trying to protect his family. But look at verse 11. He realizes something on the way. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, catch what's going on here. Uh, Ladies, uh, be encouraged. 
uh, Sarai is 65 years old here, and she is so beautiful that she is actually going to be a threat to Abram's life. I think that's fascinating. But what's more interesting is that there's now there's another threat. Abram thinks, okay, if I go down to Egypt, everything's going to be cool. But it's not, because he gets there and he realizes that, well, there's power-hungry people down there, pharaohs in particular, who would be interested in taking an attractive woman into their harem. Now, most of us think of Abram as just, again, of being this like, guy like, in a minivan. Uh, Abram has a convoy. He is recognized as a tribal leader. There are hundreds of people in his outfit. People will take notice when Abram moves into the area. And they will also take notice of the woman at his side. Abram's thought here is actually a pretty good one, I think. I think his motives are good. He says, all right, let's tell them that we're related, and we find out later on that they are. So that if anyone wants to court you, they won't kill me. What will happen is I can act as your brother, as your older brother. I can act as the one who has patriarchal rights over you, and we can just keep delaying a dowry. We don't have to let anybody marry you. I think that's the, the, the underlying plan here. So Abram's being a little cowardly. He's also disregarding the promise of chapter 12 where God says, look, if anyone curses you or says anything bad about you, I will curse them. Abram's invincible, according to chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. But here he is cowering to a powerful presence in a foreign country, uh, borrowing trouble, if you will. And so Pharaoh is going to be a legitimate threat for him. But notice what happens in verses 14 through 16. The plan goes forward exactly like Abram thinks, until it doesn't. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. By the way, does Paul here, the word the woman, I don't know why the translators did this, but the word the woman is the same word for wife in all the, uh, the rest of the chapter. So read it the way that the, the Hebrews would have read it, and and catch the irony of what's going on. When Abram entered Egypt, they saw that the wife was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the wife was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So you're thinking, all right, well, Abram's got a good plan here. At least he's just trying to protect the promise, right? Like he needs to stay alive for God's promise to last. And and yet we see in the narrative already, it was given away to us, that, that Abram isn't just concerned about the promise. He's concerned about himself. Notice how it's worded when he's speaking to Sarai back in verse 12. He says, say this is my wife. Because then they will kill me, notice the pronouns, they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. Uh, What is is he concerned about? It's not his wife. (laughs) It's himself. He is looking out for number one. He thinks that This has to work. I have to keep myself alive at anyone's expense, including my own bride. And so the plan goes farther than Abram intended. He was thinking that, okay, I can negotiate with just the normal peons of Egypt. But when word makes it to the palace, 
and then makes it to Pharaoh himself, there is no negotiating. If this woman is, to use the popular phrase, on the market, if she's available, there's no negotiating rights. So he takes her. And for, I see children in the audience, so I'm going to be like really discreet here for a moment, but I want you to know, don't get this story confused with what happens in chapter 20. Many of you grew up in church and you think, oh, good thing the Lord intervenes here because nothing really bad happens. Uh, friends, something horrible happens. It says that it t- Pharaoh takes her into his house. She was brought into his harem. He will later say, that I took her, took, as my wife. That doesn't mean he just intended to take her as his wife. He did. This is horrific. Without ever intending it, Abram has blown it big time. His internal cowardice has actually led to the unintended trafficking of his own wife. Oh, and guess what he gets? A lot of stuff. While she's being enjoyed by Pharaoh, he is trying to enjoy the wealth of the world. Slaves, animals, even camels, which were a rarity in the day. They weren't domesticated very often. And it's a horrific scene. You look at it right here and you're thinking, what in the world, Abram? I mean, what do we learn from this? Like, if you're going through interpretive paradigm number one, please tell me, like, what do you get from this lesson? Jack squat. There is nothing to learn from this man. I mean, the the Scriptures have taken off the blinders. He is not, at this point, the great man of faith that Paul will herald in Romans chapter 5. He is something totally different. But, at verse 17, Yahweh intervenes. But, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so, Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Now, Pharaoh chides Abram, Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. God intervenes and corrects this horrific situation by sending a plague upon a foreign ruler so that his chosen people will be able to escape the quandary in Egypt. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It's exactly what's going to happen in the book of Exodus, and this is exactly what would give them hope time and time again when the children of Israel would find themselves in the clutches of a foreign country on account of their own foolish faithlessness. And friends, it gives hope to me and you as well. Because I don't care who you are in the room, all of us have blown it big time. I don't know of anyone who's done anything this bad. I don't know, I really don't, like, if, 
if you've screwed it up to this degree, please talk to me afterwards so that I can start correcting this statement in the future. But this is an amazing mess up. I mean, this is astronomical what's happening here. And yet, and yet God himself will still come in. He'll still fix the problem. And guess what? Abram actually leaves Egypt richer than he came because of this whole mess. Notice it says that he left with his wife and all his possessions. Pharaoh is so ticked off, he doesn't even care to get back the dowry. He just says, get out of here. And we're going to see in the next few verses that for the first time, Abram is going to be called very rich. How in the world do you screw up so royally and still end up in an amazing position? The only thing that I can see is the relentless grace of Yahweh to his chosen people. This is mind-blowing. And so when we think about what this story is about, is is this about Abram's internal cowardice? No. It's, It's actually about Yahweh keeping his promises despite failure. Don't look for the moral of the story. Look for the meaning of the story. The meaning is this. Yahweh keeps his promises despite our failure. Now, it'd be easier for you to say, well, that's a one-off. Well, there's another story to follow just to affirm this. A next uh, vignette, if you will. If I was looking at the next vignette, which starts at chapter 13, it was basically all of chapter 13. I would call this If I was looking at it from the human perspective, I would call this Abram's internal conflict, or interpersonal conflict. Abram's interpersonal conflict. Because that seems to be what the story's about if you're looking at it through human eyes. I mean, there's going to be another threat to the promise. And it happens primarily with this guy named Lot. Now, we've seen Lot already a couple times. Uh, The narrator has dropped his name in. Makes you wonder, kind of like, who's this guy? Well, over the course of the next few chapters, we'll get to know him a little better. But what you're going to see here in chapter 13 is an intentional contrast between Abram and Lot. Notice verse 1 of chapter 13. So, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife. The fact that she's still with him blows my mind. And all that he had, and Lot with him. Notice that inclusion into the Negev. Remember that? That's where he went. He was in the southern portion of Canaan, and then he went down to Egypt. The Negev is just the the bottom part of the promised land. So he goes back up to the same place he came from. And now it says in verse 2, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Hmm, I wonder how he got that way. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. It seems like Abram's retracing his steps. I think he recognizes that he messed up in a huge way, and he wants to recapture something of that original promise that was extended to him. And so he goes back to the place between Bethel and Ai, verse 4, to the place where he made an altar at the first. Do you see that? It's like an intentional going back. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Abram still is going to believe in the promise despite his massive mess up. And... Notice now, here's the contrast. Lot, who went with him, also had flocks and herds and tents. Now, you need to keep this in mind. Only Abram, it says, was very rich. And Abram has already been characterized as a guy that worships Yahweh. 
Even when he blows it, he worships Yahweh. Let's learn something of Lot. He's got some stuff. He's not as rich as Abram. But look at verse 6. Lot has this stuff so that the land where they were could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. It means they couldn't live in the same spot. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And then there's this additional note. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. You know what the picture is? It's that of a crowded room. (laughs) You've already got the Canaanites and the Perizzites. They've been living there. Now Lot and all his company are there. Abram and all his company are there. And there's not that much space for them. I mean, if you think about someone who works on a ranch, you have to have a lot of property to be able to feed your animals. Well, here they're trying to share property, and they just keep bumping into one another. I heard a pastor friend of mine describe it this way. It's kind of like brothers who grow up sharing a room. As they get bigger, they get more stuff. They need to utilize the same resources in the room. The drawers get more and more stuff. The closet gets more and more full. And the friction begins to fly like sparks. (laughs) So what happens? Well, for them to be able to function well, they've got to split up if that option's available to them. And so you've got these two family members. They, They need to split up. Now, it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal, but you want to keep something in mind. That for the whole promise to work, Abram needs two things. He needs the land and he needs an heir. And here, he's already in the land, but now he's about to like basically offer the land away to get along with the heir. Uh, this is what we call, friends, a catch-22. When you end up in a position where it's going to be a lose-lose, because Abram thinks, I, I, I need to preserve the relationship with Lot, I need him to be the heir because my wife can't have kids, therefore, we've got to keep Lot on our side so that this promise can work. And so Abram takes a risk and says, hey, Lot, let's, let's, let's keep it cool between us. And I want you to know that we are, I'm going to let you have whatever you want. You want the left side, I'll take the right. You take the right side, I'll take the left. And so it seems like Abram is either going to have to give up the land or give up an heir. Look at verse 8. Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Notice how he's trying to fix this. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me, please, in the Hebrew. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And now here we're going to see some contrast again. Don't miss this. We're learning a difference between Abram and Lot. Notice what Lot does in verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. Like the garden of the Lord, like, like Eden, like the land of Egypt. Remember the well-watered land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar? This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Zoar was close to there. So Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And notice this note. This was well known at the time. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Lot here shows his heart. And now Abram's stuck. Land or air. The way that it shakes down is that 
Abram's going to keep the land, so it seems, but he's going to lose what looks like the best part of it. Notice how it describes the land as this very fertile place. So Abram's willingly given that away, and it just seemed like an impossible situation. What's the life lesson here? If you're reading this through paradigm number one, like, what do you come to this and say? Uh, sometimes we get in hard spots and we need to make compromises. Is that your devotional thought for the day when you read this passage? Or do you read thinking, you know, we should really value our family. Or some people have taken the moral, I mean, like lesson, like, oh, we know that Lot is a wicked place, and because Lot made a wicked decision here, like, look, he ended up close to Sodom, and then he ended up in Sodom. Look, that's a great illustration. I get it. You shouldn't go near sin. But I don't think that's what the narrator intends here. The focus is not on this. We're not reading this looking for life lessons from Abram or Lot. We're looking for what? Or who? How God will intervene. And in an impossible situation, God will intervene. Look at verse 14. For the first time, God speaks. Since the promise, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I will give it to you. You notice what God does? Abram had two concerns. He thought he was going to lose one or the other. The land or the heir. The seed, if you will. The descendant. And what does he get here at the end of this impossible situation and the befuddling silence trying to know what's next? An affirmation that he will get both the land, all of it, and the seed, the descendant. All of it. You notice it says all the land. He says, wherever you walk, you're going to own it. That what you thought you lost when Lot chose the well-watered plain, you, you get it all. Oh, and descendants, by the way, start trying to count the dust on the ground. And once you get a good number of that, then you'll have a great idea of the number of descendants that will come from you. You didn't lose an heir. You didn't lose any land. I still will keep my promise. Friends, that is a life lesson. In impossible situations, when it seems like you have to give up something of God's great promises to you in this life, I assure you that in the end, He is still at work accomplishing His perfect will of blessing on your behalf. Now there's a devotional thought for the day. Not Abram, not Lot, but Yahweh, the way that God works, the way that He intervenes. Every time we face one of those impossible situations, those conundrums, that uncomfortable spot between the rock and the hard place, that is when God is at work. And so that's the second vignette. There's a third, and it happens here in chapter 14. We see in verse 18 of 13 that Abram moved his tent. He came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Abram's still grateful. The last scene of chapter 13 is that Abram is gratefully rejoicing in the way that God will continue to provide. But then when you get to chapter 14, it just gets downright strange, if you've ever read it. Because what's going to happen is 
you're going to wade through literally 15 of the most difficult verses to read in all of the Bible. And it's not going to mention anything about God. And it's not going to mention anything about Abram. And you're going to think, am I still reading the same book? Did I skip a page? But friends, you're still reading the same book. And this is very intentional. If I were to give this, this vignette a title, it would be this. Abram's International Catastrophe. If you're going to look at this from the human perspective, it seems like chapter 14 is all about Abram being embroiled in some form of an international catastrophe. Now, we, we need to just retrace the scene here. Like, I want to give you like, the preview of what's happening because we're going to go through, and I will actually read those difficult verses, but I need you to have a heads up of what's going on ahead of time. If, this, if chapter 14 were a movie... Verses 1 through 15 would be the opening credits. There'd probably be some some dramatic music playing in the background, and you could see some scenes from a battlefield, and there'd probably be some narrative, some text that's popping up, kind of like in Star Wars, you know? Some text that's popping up to explain where we are in the story. Let me go ahead and like preview the text for you. Basically, you look in verses 1 through 4, and there's, there's been a huge battle. There's this huge battle that's going to take place between what I will call, just for the sake of clarity, the eastern kings and the western kings. All right? So it's like the conference finals. There's an eastern and a western conference. There's five guys. There's five guys in the east, and there's four guys in the west. And what you're going to see is that they start going at it with one another because... The four guys from the west have oppressed the five guys from the east, and the five guys in the east are tired of it, and they're going to rebel, which starts a war, an international war. Now, with that in mind, let's read. Let's get the background. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings, so these are the guys, by the way, if you're knowing your geography, these are the guys from the west. They're from like the Babylon area. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So this is, relatively speaking, this is the west. These guys are down by, like, the, the Salt Sea, uh, where Israel is, basically. Verse 3, And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketolaramur. He was the leader of those western or eastern kings. But in the thirteenth year, they rebelled. They were tired of that. And in the fourteenth year, one year later, Ketolaramur and the kings who were with him came. Now, Paul's here for a moment. Now it catches you up. You get the first few verses, you get the overview. And this is what you know is going to happen. There's going to be a big battle right by the Salt Sea. So, meet the enemy. I want you to notice how dominant Kedolaramur and his allies are. Verse 5, In the fourteenth year, Kedolaramur and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shava Kirathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness... Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. 
Now, don't get lost with the details of the names, but um, pardon the phrase, but these guys kick butt and take names. They dominate all the way from that western, or excuse me, eastern section where they were. Sorry, I don't want to do this backwards. So they're up here, and they go on a path of destruction all the way down into what we now know as Israel. And they're just wiping out everybody. In fact, they're so dominant that they make it down to the south, and then they come back up to, to, to clean up a little more. And you know what they're trying to do? They're ultimately trying to get to these five kings in that one area who had rebelled against them. And so now we're going to have a showdown. So they've eliminated everybody in their path thus far, and it sets up this battle that I initially told you about. The, the valley, the, excuse me, the battle that took place in, uh, near the Salt Sea in the Valley of Sedim. Look with me at verse 8. Notice this. Then the king of Sodom, sound familiar? The king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the Valley of Sedim. This is that valley that's right where basically Lot decided to go with, who do they go to battle with? Ketolaramur, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. I love that. What a great narrative note. What it wants you to see is that the odds should be in favor of these guys from the West. I just referenced basketball. Imagine that. Conference finals, East versus West, and then you've got five on four in the NBA finals. Who are you expecting to win? The team with five. Who would you expect to win here? The team with five. You think that, in this case, the guys from the West, oh yeah, they're, they're going to put a stop to this. But notice what happens. They're on home court. They're in their own territory. Verse 10, now the valley of Sedin, that's where they live, was full of bitumen pits. That's just tar. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, notice this, they fled... Some fell into them, and the rest fell into the hill, fled into the hill country. It is an abysmal defeat. They are fighting on their own territory, and the natural resources they could have used against their enemies, they're falling into, and they head for the hills and run. It is a miserable defeat. The four versus five, well, guess what? The four win, and they win big time. But notice what happens in verse 11. So the enemy, this is shameful took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah because the, sh the soldiers are out in the hills. They just march in there. They take everything, all their provisions, and they went their way. And notice who they also take. Verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Do you see what's happening here? Now, you're reading these first few verses and you're like, man, what does this have to do with anything? Who cares about this huge battle between the five kings of the... Let me get my map up again. The five kings of the east versus the four kings of the west. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Abram is going to get wrapped up in this thing because he is honor-bound to protect his family. Lot is taken as a political prisoner. Lot and all of his stuff. And Abram's going to find out about it. Now, who is Abram? Well, right now he just seems to be a pretty powerful tribal leader, but we don't know of him having any military might. We just know that he's a rich guy. And let's see what happens. Verse 13. 
Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. That's important. It's going to associate, it's given all these nation names, and now we're going to find out how Hebrews respond in battle. Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, pause for a moment. Abram has trained his own militia. See, friends, that's why I think you need a bigger picture of Abraham. Humanly speaking, like this, again, not minivan, convoy. He had 318 people already trained as a ready-made militia. He is a tribal leader. Even though he doesn't have any family of his own, he has servants, he has a business. This is a man who is a mover and a shaker. But here, though, it's just 318 people versus literally four of the most powerful nations on the face of the earth at that time as evidenced by their total domination of the landscape. What is Abram going to do here? Well, he goes in pursuit. He goes in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Listen, it is a total recovery. He chases these people down. He doesn't just like engage them like near home. He goes and chases them down and he gets literally everything back. How in the world would somebody with such limited military means defeat these five or four kings, excuse me, who would literally mop the floor with the whole Near East? You should be asking that question. Because that's what all that initial introductory stuff was about. Now let's pause. Through paradigm number one, interpretive paradigm number one, if we're saying moral lessons from the life of Abram, he's a great example. What are you doing with this? Well, I guess the Second Amendment really matters. We better lock and load and defend our families as we need to. I'm a fan of the Second Amendment, by the way, but I don't think that that's what this is about. This isn't some analogy on battling for our families. This is about Yahweh. Disagree with me. Disagree with me. Because, guess what? Yahweh wasn't mentioned. It's like, ha, I got you, Justin. Your little stuff. This interpretive little scheme of yours, it's not going to work. Yahweh wasn't mentioned. Ha, ha, ha. But he is. Because the chapter doesn't end with Abram recovering Lot. Notice how it ends. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedolaramur and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Now, Paul's stop trying to read into who Melchizedek is and thinking of Hebrews. Just read the story for what it's worth at the moment and try to interpret it the way that the original author intended. Melchizedek says, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, 
possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Do you see what's happening here? You want to know what's going on in this story? You should be asking, like, why in the world is Abram so successful? Is he just that bad already? No. The explanation, there's two possible explanations of what's going on here according to the interpreter. There's the human and the divine. There's notice. When Abram makes his way back, he's confronted by two individuals, both of whom are addressed in turn. There's the king of Sodom, and then there's the king of Salem. Now, although he mentions both, he starts off with the words from the king of Salem. Salem's going to give us the divine, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, will give us a divine perspective. And Abram will affirm the reality of this perspective based on how he treats these different kings. What is it that Melchizedek, this unknown priest king from nowhere, again, the relevance of that soon to be determined. But this unknown priest king, this one that Abram recognizes as one who has a special relationship with God, a spokesperson for God, what does he say? What is his explanation of all of this that has happened? Blessed be Abram. He is blessed. He is blessed. He, this guy enjoys the blessing of God already by God most high. Not just any God, but the most high God. The possessor of heaven and earth. And then he blesses God. He praises God, but notice what he praises him for. He says, blessed be God most high, notice this, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. If there was any question as to why this whole military campaign ever worked out in the first place, Melchizedek is here to let us know why it happened. It was the blessing of Yahweh. He was the one that intervened in the international catastrophe and rescued Abram in the line. And what does Abram do? He gives them a tenth of all that he won from the war, affirming that, yes, you were right. Indeed, this is is the divine statement. This is from God. This is truth. I will give you what I have. But now notice the king of Sodom. He tries to offer an alternate explanation. Verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Same terminology from earlier. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. What was the king of Sodom trying to do? He was trying to say, oh, you had a good military win here, and because of that, since this was a good human endeavor, why don't you take the possessions and you give me the people? And he's trying to make it a business transaction. And Abram says, I knew you would try to do that, and I want to make it crystal clear that if I am blessed in this land and in this country, it is not because of you. It is because God Most High Himself has made me rich. You keep your stuff. Just pay the provisions for the other guys. And you walk away from this vignette and you see that, well, yeah, there is a sense in which it's about Abram's international catastrophe. But more than anything, it's about Yahweh keeping his promise 
despite international catastrophe. Even when the world is at war, God is still at work. Blessing, protecting, securing His ultimate purpose. So, what are these vignettes about? It's simple. God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. I was shocked to learn this week that there is a lawsuit waging between three individuals over the authorship of footprints. You know footprints? Go into any Christian bookstore on the planet and there will be a coffee mug with a beach and sand and little footprints in the sand. And then the story. You've heard it, right? I mean, it's, it's trite, it's cheesy. If it's your favorite poem, please forgive me. I'm not trying to, like, rain on your poem. Um, it's trite and it's cheesy, but it's true, right? Like, here's the story. The story goes that there's this guy, and he has this dream, and in this dream he sees a beach, and he and the Lord are walking on the beach, and these scenes of his life keep popping up. And every time he sees a scene of his life, he looks back on the beach and he sees two sets of footprints. And then another scene of his life pops up and he looks back and he sees two sets of footprints. And then he gets to the end of his life and he looks back on all those scenes and the footprints represented. And notice that in the most difficult times of his life, in the most unexplainable aspects of his life, there were only one set of footprints. And so he laments to the Lord, why was it that you abandoned me in those times? And then God himself in the poem explains, it was in those moments that I carried you. That's a sweet line. But let me get back to the legal controversy for a moment. How is it that three different individuals can actually argue in a court of law on an anonymous poem, by the way? I mean, it even says it on the coffee mug. Just kidding. I know there's more to it than that. How is it that three different people can think that they came up with that story? Now, I'm not a legal analyst. I haven't done too much research on this. But I would just venture to say that there's three people who could say that they or their heir, or excuse me, their parents made up that story because it's such an easy story to identify with. I mean, by the time you get to the end of it, like, you're like, oh, yeah, I totally see that. Like, you could have had that dream. You could have had that story. Every one of us in this room who have faithfully walked with Jesus have had those moments from time to time where we felt like, what in the world is going on here? <laughs> Sometimes you look back on like in the beach sand and you, it looks like somebody was flailing and dying. It wasn't footprints. It was just body prints. All right, what was going on? Lord, what, what was happening there? And then other times you see the two. And then other times in, in these impossible situations. I mean, it's just a lose. It, there is no winning this. And you look back, you're like, man, there was only one set of footprints there. Lord, what's up? And then you, you get to those like international catastrophes. I mean, things outside of you that you couldn't help that were impinging their way on you regularly. And you're thinking, what is going on? And it is only those who have read carefully the text of sacred scripture, who know what was really going on. And that was that God was at work from the very beginning. 
even when you fell, he got you back up. And even when it was hard and impossible, he carried you through. And even when it seemed like the whole world was at war, he protected. That is the story of Genesis 12 through 14. Friends, this is what you need to know this morning more than anything else. God keeps his promises, not because of you, but in spite of you. And not just in spite of you, but also through difficult and impossible circumstances. And also through unavoidable catastrophe. God is at work. How do we know this to be true? See, true of Abram, how do we know it's true for us? Because, friends, the ultimate promise of Abram did come to pass. Those people did get that land, and they did enjoy that victory, and they did become a great nation. And by the way, they still are recognized as a nation against all odds. And, and, the descendant who would bless the entire world came. Against all odds, that, that one seed would eventually force his way into history in the most unlikely of all circumstances. And he would live a righteous life in obscurity and then step on the scene at around 30 years of age and overcome every obstacle thrown against him, never giving in to the temptations around him, always perfectly fulfilling God's righteous law, and then dying, not for himself because it was clear he had never done anything wrong, but dying like the, the passage in Isaiah 53 predicted for the sins of others. He would fix the whole curse on the world by absorbing it in his himself and then not only dying but rising again three days later to show that the promise had been fully and finally fulfilled God keeps his promises not because of you or me but in spite of us that's the truth and in light of that I think there are three very practical, appropriate ways to respond. Once you get the meaning of the story, friends, then you can think about the moral of the story. We've got the meaning. God keeps His promises. Moral, you want a checklist? You want to know what you can do in light of this? If God keeps His promises, there should be three things that the, that reality will do to us. The first one is it will turn us around. It will turn us around. What I mean by that is if you have been living for your own self in absolute ignorance to what God is doing in this world, if you are still fully absorbed with your way, your plan, your agenda, and you're trying to make everything work out well for you, friends, let me just go and tell you, give up. It's not going to work. God does not work that way. You have 0% that you contribute to the salvific enterprise. Jesus does it all. And what you need to do is to repent of that self-righteousness, that inclination that you have to try to fix things on God's behalf, and just trust totally in Jesus. That will turn your life around. I mean, what are we, almost in June? How many failed New Year's resolutions have you had? 
that would help you understand that you cannot fix this thing on your own. This truth, that God keeps his promises, will turn you around. Not only does it turn us around, but I think there's some senses in which it revs us up. It revs us up. What I like about this story is that Abram does seem to change. He fails miserably in the first account, right? But then in the second one, it seems as if he's trusting God because he just says, I don't know what to do here, but God's going to have to work. You take whatever land you need to. And then you get to the final story, and man, here's an Abram of relentless faith. Who would take on these kings apart from one who believed that God will actually curse those who curse him and bless those who bless him? Understanding that God keeps his promises doesn't make you lazy. Some of the more cynical among us could think that. Oh, great application, Justin. Now you're going to tell everybody just to go out and chill this week. Actually, I will tell you to do that in a second. But before I do, I want you to know that trust and belief in God's promises actually activates us. It it pulls us into the battle. The temptation is just to to quit and to think that it's bigger than us, to sit on our hands. And yet this says, all right, I know that God is at work. I am invincible until he calls me home. And therefore, I will pursue amazing opportunities for the kingdom of God, however he presents them. It could be terms of radical generosity. It could be terms of like lifetime ministry. I don't know what that looks like for you. But if you know that God has placed something on your heart, but fear has kept you where you are, you need to believe the promises of God and move on. So it turns us around, it revs us up, but it also calms us down. It calms us down. See, the truth is, some of you this morning need to be revved up. You need to start doing something for Jesus because you've just been sitting on the sidelines. But some of you, quite honestly, just need to take it down a notch. (laughs) Because there's this temptation to think, and this is the way I think it works. We know that God really has to intervene. I don't think there's anybody in this room who knows anything of God who would say, yeah, it's all up to me. But we typically think that it's like 90% up to God and maybe 10% up to us. And that 10%, we own 100% of it. We're thinking, I've got to make this work. I, if my kids are going to be saved, I better be involved. If I'm going to reach this neighbor, like, I've got to force it to happen. If, if this church building is going to get built, we've got to make sure that, that it happens. I mean, you can start thinking down the line of all the things that have to happen and conniving and cunning and planning, scheming. And yet what this text reminds us is that, no, we don't need your fervency. We need your faithfulness. You rest in Jesus to accomplish his promises. And then you work for Jesus on behalf of his promises. And guess what? When you get tired, you rest in Jesus. And then you work for Jesus. And then you rest. You notice the rhythm? I mean, he's getting it done. He's chosen to use you indeed. But in the end, if you're not counting on him to get it done, it will never happen. I say this for two reasons. One is because some of you will be paralyzed by your prior defeats. I don't think anybody inadvertently trafficked their wife. I told you that. But you know what it is to fail miserably. And when that happens, if you don't believe the promise of God, you will sit out thinking, he's done. 
He's done. I don't know that he's going to use me to be a blessing to other people. But when you believe, you move past that and you recognize that, you know what? He doesn't just work in my obedience. He can even take that bad and turn it into something good. He doesn't work just because of me. He works in spite of me. And if something that you've done in your past has just kept you from obeying Jesus, just chill out. It has been remedied. The promises of God are true. You can continue to serve him. And in the same way, just as a former disaster could derail you, the pressures of life could overcome you. An older pastor friend of mine told me, I don't know if this is true, I don't even know where he got this information, but he's older and wiser, so I've got to trust him. He said, on any given Sunday, 75% of the people in your congregation are discouraged. Looking at your faces, it seems like he might be right. The subtle head nods. You know what it is to battle day in and day out and to feel like you're losing. But you're not losing at all because the promise is not dependent upon you. He's at work. And so you believe. And as we discussed last week, once you believe, then you obey. I don't care what's happening. Internal, external, it could be international catastrophe, it could be internal conflict, it could be personal failure, whatever it is, you can move on because God will fulfill His promises in Christ. And that's where we live in, in Christ. This is only true of those who are in Christ. And so the first implication is the one that kicks off the other two. Have you turned it around? Have you believed in that promise so that you can obey in faith? Because only in Christ is relentless blessing found. And so we leave here this this morning energized, encouraged that God keeps His promises. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for all who are present today. It is our desperate need or to trust more in what you have done for us and what you are doing in us and what you will do for us in the end. As we prayed earlier, we believe, but help our unbelief. Or move this church to radical acts of obedience in faith. And for those who do not know you, for those who have yet to believe in your promises and be included in the blessings found in Christ, Father, I pray that you would capture their attention today and that they would turn from their their self-righteousness, their self-effort, and they would throw themselves on your mercy. Please open their eyes, convert them, give them spiritual life today that they may be saved so that they may believe and that your good plan may continue. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.